We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 70 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, May 25th, 2021. Yes, we have reached the age of 70, and we are in the midst of the day after the silencing of the cicadas in our area. No doubt you have heard the cicadas lately. How could you not have heard the cicadas lately? They have been everywhere. The brood X cicadas, they emerge every 17 years. We hadn't seen them since 2004, which interestingly, and I was thinking about this, was the year in which Phil Mickelson won his first major in golf. He then on Sunday, right, became the oldest winner of a major at the age of 50. So maybe Phil Mickelson is an undercover cicada. Anyway, the brood X cicadas have been everywhere. They're all over our driveway. They're probably all over wherever you live. And they, of course, do not shut up. That noise that they make had been nonstop until Monday when it rained. And cicadas were silenced. And it was wonderful. No fan of the rain am I. But if it means shutting up the cicadas for a day, well, I think we can live with the rain. But hello and welcome. We had on Monday, I believe, a sign. I saw the sign, as Ace of Base once said. I saw a sign on Monday that the Ron Rivera culture change for the Washington football team is taking effect. I'm going to talk about this coming up Next segment, we have on Tuesday a Washington OTA practice that is open to the media. Ron will be speaking via Zoom press conference on Tuesday morning, but it was on Monday that something emerged that I believe is reason to believe that the culture change is taking effect. Also, on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast regarding the Washington football team, Julio Jones. There was a lot out there on Monday regarding Julio. Should Washington be in? on Julio. Would Julio make sense for Washington? What, if anything, should Washington be willing to trade to the Atlanta Falcons for Julio? Why is Julio such a fun name to say? I don't know, and I'm not sure that I'll be able to answer that question, but I will answer those other questions in just a bit. Special guest on the show, John Press, founder of Japers Rink, which is a very prominent site about the Capitals, is the SB Nation site for the Caps. Now what? That's the question for the Caps, right? Now what? Where do they go from here? Where should they go from here off the five-game first-round series loss to the Boston Bruins? If you're a Caps fan, you don't want to miss my chat with John Press. We get into everything. Alex Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, the goaltending situation, Peter Laviolette, and a lot more. I will talk Wizards, some interesting stuff from the Wiz on Monday off their game one loss at the Philadelphia 76ers on Sunday afternoon in the first round of the NBA playoffs. If you're like me and have been wondering why Daniel Gafford doesn't play more, Scott Brooks actually addressed that on Monday. 
And I'll talk Orioles, another painful loss for them on Monday night. Look, they are tanking, so it's actually good that they're losing these games. But geez, this team is finding new and creative ways to lose these days. 45-minute rain delay at the Minnesota Twins on Monday night. Then a monstrous two-run home run by DJ Stewart for a 3-2 lead. And then the bullpen gives up six runs in the bottom of the eighth inning. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I do continue to get a lot of feedback from you guys about the Caps having been eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a third consecutive season. Email from Jerry Moore. So foolish not to sign trots. Great decision, Ted. I tell you, man, it is incredible what has happened for each party since the Caps parted ways with Barry Trotz. The Caps allowing old Trotzy to leave the offseason after the Capitals won the Stanley Cup championship in 2018, is the ultimate you-better-be-right decision. You know, the Caps had a benefit of the doubt at the time. They did have this assistant coach named Todd Reardon, who the Caps internally felt like was going to be a very good head coach. So you said to yourself, all right, look, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but there is a benefit of the doubt that the Caps get. We do see teams in the NHL change coaches all the time, even when those teams happen to be winning at times. So, all right, but you better be right on something like this. And more wrong, the Capitals could not have been. For the Caps, as we all know too well, three consecutive first-round exits in the Stanley Cup playoffs since the divorce with old Trotzy, including, right, these last two first-round exits, each coming in just five games. For Trotz and his new team, which I guess isn't so new anymore, the New York Islanders, advancement to at least the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of the last two seasons. The Islanders made it to the Eastern Conference Final in last season's Stanley Cup playoffs, during which the Isles, of course, eliminated the Caps in the first round in five games. And now for the Islanders, a 3-2 lead on the Pittsburgh Penguins in the first round of this season's Stanley Cup playoffs. The Islanders on Monday night, in case you missed it, a 3-2 double overtime win at the Pens to take a 3-2 series lead. Not counting those Stanley Cup qualifier games from last season, the Caps over the last three seasons are just 5-12 and in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Trotsy and the Islanders now, over the last three seasons, are 17-14 and in the Stanley Cup playoffs. How about that as a Caps fan? Caps over the last three years, 5-12 and 12 in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Again, not counting the Stanley Cup qualifier games from last season. Trotsy and the Isles now over the last three seasons, 17-14 and 14 in the Stanley Cup playoffs without counting the Stanley Cup qualifier games. You look at that as a Caps fan, you hear that as a Caps fan, you digest that as a Caps fan. What do you think Ted Leonsis is thinking when he hears that? Because I can tell you what old Trotsy is thinking. He's doing the Kirk Cousins, how you like me now? How do you like me now? How do you like me now? Exactly. Thank you, Kirky. Uh, I have for you another rankings update for the Al Galdi podcast. A colossal surge in the latest rankings, up 24 spots. Yes, 24 spots to number 27 in the country in the latest rankings on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. The rankings change constantly, but as I am taping this very early on Tuesday morning, that's where we're at. Up 24 spots to number 27 in the country. So thank you again for the continued support. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Doing so costs you nothing and really helps out. Also, please give the podcast a five-star rating And if you have like 30 seconds, just write a one-sentence review. Again, costs you nothing. And again, helps out the podcast a lot. And don't forget, if you would like to become a sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, if you would like to advertise on the podcast, if you are, say, a doctor or a lawyer who wants to expand his or her practice, or you run a business that's getting back into the swing of things with the reopening of our country, email us the address, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Let the power of the pod work for you. And speaking of power. Ah, yes. So Washington football team head coach Ron Rivera, the head coach in the coach-centric approach, the godfather of the family, the mafia that is the WFT. Don Ron will be speaking on Tuesday, 10.30 a.m. Zoom press conference as the OTA practice portion of Washington's offseason is getting going. You know by now how we roll on this podcast. When the Don speaks, we listen. So we'll have for you a lot on Wednesday's podcast regarding what Ron 
had to say. But speaking of Washington beginning the OTA practice portion of the team's offseason, something came up on Monday that to me was impossible to ignore. I tweeted about it. It has to do with the C word. No, not that C word. Another C word. A word that has become very popular with Washington in recent years. Culture. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Bruce Allen, the culture. So let's set this up properly. The NFL's offseason program for the 2021 offseason has been a big to-do. The NFL Players Association has openly urged players to boycott in-person offseason workouts due to the perception that this past season, the 2020 season, which of course followed a 2020 offseason in which there were no OTA practices due to the COVID-19 pandemic, showed that voluntary OTA practices, which for years, of course, have essentially been voluntary in name only, weren't needed. As the NFLPA was negotiating with the NFL on the terms of the 2021 offseason program, multiple teams announced via the NFLPA that they would be boycotting in-person offseason workouts. Those teams included the New York Giants, the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Seattle Seahawks, the Detroit Lions, the Bill Belichick-coached New England Patriots, and the Denver Broncos. Now, one of the things that has really turned me off to all of those teams boycotting has been the blatant usage of the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse for not showing up for in-person off-season workouts. It is one thing to say that the OTA practices don't necessarily lead to winning and unnecessarily expose players to injury risk. There's a conversation to be had about those things. It's another thing, though, to make it sound like the NFL is endangering players in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. This, to me, is the kind of fear-mongering regarding the pandemic that has been ridiculous and yet has been perpetuated by way too many, especially in the media. Take a listen, though, to a portion of the NFLPA statement released on behalf of Giants players in April. Quote, We stand in solidarity with players across our league who are making informed decisions with the help of our union, both in light of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and what the data shows about the benefits to our overall health and safety, end quote. Ah, yes, the playing of the COVID-19 card. That, to me, is shameful. That, to me, is unnecessary, irresponsible fear-mongering for several reasons. Number one, the NFL successfully conducted a 2020 season during one of the peaks of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not a single NFL game was canceled. Not a single NFL player got seriously ill, as far as we know. There has been zero evidence of on-field transmission of COVID-19 in NFL games or practices. Number two, so successful was the NFL in its conducting of the 2020 season during the COVID-19 pandemic that the CDC, yes, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, published a scientific paper jointly authored with medical experts from the NFL and NFL Players Association detailing the efforts to complete the NFL's 2020 regular season and postseason without, once again, any canceled games due to COVID-19. And then number three, we are, of course, coming out of the pandemic and, in fact, have been for weeks now. So this notion of back in April of, I don't know, you know, pandemic's going on, got to be careful with this thing. Like, yeah, sure, you have to be careful. But the United States, as of last month, as of April, was administering COVID-19 vaccines to millions of people per day to say nothing of where the country is now and will be in June. The pandemic is in its dying days and hopefully is never heard from again. You know, we'll see what happens with these variants, with the potential for booster shots for the vaccines, et cetera. But we're coming out of this thing if we're not out of this thing, essentially, already. All right, back to the topic at hand. Back to the lecture at hand, as the great Snoop Dogg said years ago. The NFL on May 6th announced its off-season program for this off-season. The program was not agreed to by the NFLPA, but the league was allowed to unilaterally implement the program as permitted by the collective bargaining agreement. This is another thing that cracks me up with the NFLPA. So the latest CBA came to be last off-season, right? This is for 2020 through 2030. It was approved by the owners in February 2020, was ratified by the players in March 2020, And remember how the player ratification of the CBA came to be. The approval was narrow. It was done by a vote, and the players approved it by a vote of 1,019 for 959 against. And, and this is the best part, about 500 players didn't 
even vote. That's why, to me, the NFLPA, when it whines and complains, and some of the gripes are valid, I'm not here to tell you that they're not, but, like, the NFLPA barks loudly, talks a big game, and then never backs it up with any action. The NFLPA gets walloped every time there's another round of CBA negotiations. And then when it comes time to do something as simple as vote on a CBA, 500 members of the NFLPA, 500 players, don't even take the time to vote. That's why it's it's very hard for me to sit here and be like, yeah, let me listen to all your concerns. 500 of your people couldn't even be bothered to vote on the latest CBA. Anyway, phase three of the NFL's voluntary nine-week offseason program in the 2021 offseason began on Monday. Phase three takes place from May 24th through June 18th, is four weeks in length. The rules for phase three include teams being able to conduct a total of 10 days of organized team practice activity, OTA practices. You're likely familiar with these. We've had them for years now. The OTA practices are technically voluntary, but we all know that they're more like voluntold. Uh, no life contact is permitted at OTA practices, but 7-on-7, seven 9-on-7, seven, seven, and 11-on-11 11 11 drills are permitted. Additionally, teams are allowed, as has been the case for years, to conduct one mandatory minicamp during Phase 3. And so all of this brings us to our team, the Washington football team. Washington on Monday reportedly had more than 80 players show up at the team's facility in Ashburn, Virginia, for the start of Phase 3 of Washington's 2021 off-season program. Yes, you heard that right. More than 80 players. So let's think about this. In an off-season in which a number of teams via the NFLPA have openly announced boycotting in-person off-season workouts, Washington players not only have not done that, they have showed up for the start of the OTA practice portion of the off-season program, what is technically voluntary, in a major way. Again, more than 80 players showing up on Monday per reports. This is validation of Ron Rivera's culture change having been implemented. And yes, it remains too early to tell if the culture change is working, i.e. translating into more wins. We have to see more than one season. But for me, it is impossible to look at all of this and not appreciate it and also not think about something that went down with Washington just a few years ago. It happened late in Washington's 2018 season. Jay Gruden, after practice, on December 6th, 2018, revealed something that drove me nuts. He revealed that there had been some griping and complaining by some Washington players over the previous two days about practice being too long and or hard. Quote, I think our guys this time of year, you can imagine that when you have 63 guys out here practicing, there can be some griping and moaning going on here. We had pads on today for the first part of practice. We had to check out our new linemen, and people weren't happy about that. Yesterday, practice, they weren't happy. They just played on Monday night, but there's a lot of things we have to get done from an offensive standpoint, end quote. I remember when Jay said this, and I went crazy. I will never forget this reveal from Jay. I cannot tell you how much I hated this reveal from Jay. What Jay revealed made his players look so weak and so soft that they were complaining about practice. And I'm not trying to be Captain Tough Guy here, but come on. Washington was in the midst of a playoff push. As much as it may have felt like the team wasn't, the team was at the time. Washington had lost four of the team's last five games. Washington was getting set to start a guy at quarterback in Mark Sanchez, who hadn't started an NFL regular season game since November 26, 2015, and who had just signed with the team on November 19th, 2018. Also, Washington had just signed a new number two quarterback, and Josh Johnson, the previous day, remember this was a season in which Alex Smith broke his leg, then Colt McCoy broke his leg. So you were down to Mark Sanchez and Josh Johnson. Washington also was getting set to start third string guys 
at both guard spots. I don't know. Sounds to me like maybe some extra practice was needed, and yet these players were whining and complaining like a bunch of softies, like a bunch of sissies, like a bunch of pansies. You know, one of my favorite scenes from the movie The Godfather. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? Exactly. That's what was needed in that moment. Someone like the Godfather, like the Don, to slap some toughness into these guys. But there was more to this reveal by Jay than just that the players had been complaining. It's that they felt comfortable complaining to Jay. Think about that. Do you think that Patriots players late in the 2018 season were openly complaining to Bill Belichick about practices being too long and or being too hard? What did it say? about how players felt about Jay that they had no problem voicing these complaints late in a season in which the team was in playoff contention. And this reveal by Jay in multiple ways to me was a flashing neon sign of the culture wasn't good at the time. And oh, by the way, what ended up happening in Washington's next game, that game that Washington was preparing for with these practices that were supposedly too long and too hard? Washington got demolished. The team lost its fourth consecutive game, fell to 6-7, and seven, a 40-16 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon, December 9th, 2018, in the infamous Mark Sanchez game. The result of the game perfectly reflected the preparation for the game. Look, I'm not here to say that all of Washington's culture problems are to be considered fixed due to more than 80 players showing up for the start of phase three of Washington's 2021 offseason program. But that's not nothing in the midst of an offseason in which, again, the NFLPA has been openly advocating for players to boycott in-person offseason workouts. And 80-plus players showing up on Monday contrasts so much with what went down with that fading 2018 Washington team under Jay. You take that snapshot from December 2018, you compare it with the snapshot from Monday, and it's two very different stories being told. The Ron Rivera era, at its core, is about the culture change that none other than Dan Snyder himself declared at Ron's introductory press conference. More than 80 players showing up on Monday is a sign that the culture change, maybe, just maybe, is working. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Exactly, Brucey. So we on Monday had multiple developments in the saga of Atlanta Falcons receiver Julio Jones. He is on the trading block and we now know that he wants out and supposedly has wanted out for a while. So first of all, we had great television in Shannon Sharp of FS1's Undisputed calling Julio Jones on the air and asking him about his future. Jones didn't seem to know that he was on the air, but he said regarding his future with the Falcons, quote, I'm out of there, end quote. Here's how this sounded. You'll hear the two guys featured on Undisputed, Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless, and on the phone, Julio Jones, and we'll pick this up off him having answered the phone. Julio! I got you. This is your favorite uncle. What's going on, bro? Man, nothing much. Got to go meet up with my brother. What's happening with you? Man, look, you want to go to the Cowboys, Julio, or you want to stay in Atlanta? <laughs> oh, man, nah, I'm out of there, man. You He's out, out. Of there? He's out of there. Oh, Are you going to... You, ideally, where would you like to go? Um, uh, right now, I'm just... I want to win. Okay. Yeah. We don't go to Dallas. If you go to... You ain't winning in Dallas, Julio. All right, so on and on it goes. And like I said, I don't think that Julio Jones knew that he was on the air when he was saying those things. And that's a big no-no. But anyway, we got what we got. Julio Jones, quote, I'm out of there, end quote. So he feels like he's about to be dealt. He certainly feels like his time with the Atlanta Falcons is coming to an end. Now, later in the day on Monday... NFL insider Albert Breer of SI.com and the MMQB tweeted that per sources, Jones, through his agent, approached the Falcons about them trading him back in March. So Jones, at least per the reporting of Breer, has wanted out from Atlanta for a while. We also on Monday regarding Julio Jones got a sense of what the asking price 
from the Falcons is. ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter on Monday tweeted that teams that have inquired with the Falcons about trading for Jones have been told that the price is a first round pick. Schefter also added that others around the league do not believe that the Falcons will ultimately get a first round pick for Jones. And Schefter tweeted that the Falcons prefer not to trade Jones to an NFC team. Also, Breer in a column that came out on Monday for SI.com suggested that the trade compensation for Jones could be a second round pick. The Falcons potentially trading Julio Jones really got going about a month ago, April 26, just three days before the start of the 2021 NFL draft, when NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com reported that the Falcons had been receiving trade calls on Jones. We really hadn't heard that much in recent weeks, and then we got what we got on Monday, an avalanche of developments in the Julio Jones saga. So, of course, we look at everything on this podcast when it comes to the NFL through a Washington football team prism. When it comes to should Washington be in on Julio Jones, I would say the following. The Washington football team should be in on Julio Jones if and only if each of the following standards is met, okay? I am going to set up very strict and specific parameters for Washington potentially trading for Julio Jones. Standard number one, the trade compensation for Julio Jones must include neither a first round pick nor a second round pick. I have no interest in Washington with where the team is at right now, giving up a first round pick, even a second round pick for Julio Jones. If this is something you can do for a third round pick, okay, now I'm interested, but I'm not giving up a two and I'm certainly not giving up a one for Julio Jones, not with where he's at in his career, not for what he costs, even though the cost actually isn't that bad. That brings me to standard number two. I'm only interested in Washington trading for Julio Jones if Washington is very comfortable with Julio Jones contractually. This includes reasonable confidence that Jones isn't going to like pitch a fit over his contract, you know, demand an extension, demand more guaranteed money, etc. And that Washington is good with what is owed to Jones. So Julio Jones has three seasons left on his contract, actually has very reasonable base salaries moving forward. This upcoming season, 2021, $15.3 million. And then the next two years, 2022 and 2023, each season he has a base salary of $11.513 million. Those are pretty reasonable base salaries for a guy who's been one of the top receivers in the NFL for a decade. What is tricky though about Jones's contract is that the $15.3 million for the upcoming season is fully guaranteed, as are $2 million in 2022. So $17.3 million in guaranteed money remains on Julio's contract. So you got to understand that if you're trading for Julio Jones, you're giving up in theory a pick and you're assuming at the very least $17.3 million in money, unless somehow the Falcons pick up some of that money. But remember, the reason the Falcons are trying to trade Julio Jones is that Atlanta is up against it when it comes to the salary cap. But standard number two is Washington has got to be very comfortable with where things are contractually with Julio Jones. And then standard number three for any potential serious interest for our Washington football team in trading for Julio Jones is Washington must be comfortable with Julio Jones medically. So the 2021 season is going to be Jones's age 32 season. He in the 2020 season played in just nine games for the Falcons due to a lingering hamstring injury. That's a big red flag in terms of a receiver already in his 30s, a lot of mileage on the body, and now he had to deal with a lingering hamstring injury in his most recent season. But in fairness to Jones, he over the previous six seasons, 2014 through 2019, played in 92 of a possible 96 regular season game. So he's actually been quite durable, but he wasn't durable last season. Like I said, older, lots of mileage. You better be sure, or at least be reasonably sure, that the body isn't falling apart here. So if you can't check each of these three boxes, A, the trade compensation for Jones includes neither a first round pick nor a second round pick. B, Washington is very comfortable with Julio Jones contractually. And C, Washington is very comfortable with Julio Jones medically. Then no, no thank you. Uh, I'm not interested in Washington trading for Julio Jones. The only reason I'm even setting up these standards is that Julio Jones can still play. You know, Jones over a six-season stretch, 2014 through 2019, never had fewer than 1,000 
394 receiving yards in a season. Think about that. His worst season in terms of receiving yards over a six-season stretch was 1,394 yards. Another way of looking at that is like this. The single-season record for receiving yards in Washington franchise history is Santana Moss's 1,483 yards in 2005. Julio Jones, three times in his career, has done better than 1,483 receiving yards in a season. 2014, 2015, and 2018. So the single-season franchise record for receiving yardage for Washington, that has been eclipsed three times in the career of Julio Jones. And even last season, in which Jones only played in nine games, he still had a career-best catch percentage, which is receptions divided by targets, of 75, and had a yards per catch of 15.1, which was his best yards per catch in three seasons. And consider this too, Julio Jones, over the last three seasons, in terms of yards per route run, for Sports Info Solutions, among receivers, each with at least 50 targets, has been top 10 in the NFL. 2018, number one, was Jones in yards per route run. 2019, number five. 2020, number six. So he's still very good. He's still productive. He really is an all-time great. Like, I think he's a future Pro Football Hall of Famer. So heck yeah, I would be interested in Julio Jones from a Washington football team perspective. But I'm setting up very strict standards by which I would agree to a trade. Otherwise, no thank you. You know, he's Julio Jones. Washington would be foolish not to at least kick the tires. But if I'm Ron Rivera, I'm not overextending myself for Julio Jones. One, the trade compensation for Jones must include neither a first nor a second round pick. Two, Washington has to be very comfortable. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Comfortable with Jones contractually. Three, Washington has to be very comfortable with Jones medically. Otherwise, we ride with some version of what we already have at receiver. Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Cam Sims, Deami Brown, Kelvin Harmon, Steven Sims, Antonio Gandy-Golden. You get the idea. The cupboard for Washington at receiver is not bare. Julio Jones for Washington would be an upgrade. He would be, though, a luxury, not a necessity. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. So here we are again. The Capitals eliminated 
from the Stanley Cup playoffs after one round. Third consecutive season in which the Caps have been ousted in the first round of the playoffs. On Tuesday, Caps players will be speaking to reporters via Zoom in the final widespread media availability for Caps players this season. On Wednesday, Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan and Head Coach Peter Laviolette will be speaking to reporters via Zoom. What went wrong for the Caps in their five-game first-round series loss to the Boston Bruins? What should the Caps thinking be moving forward. Very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now. John Press, the founder of Japers Rink, which has been a very popular site covering the Capitals for years, is the SB Nation site for the Caps. JP, it's great to talk to you again, man. The only other time we spoke was during the run to the 2018 Cup. A happier time indeed. How are you? <laughs> yeah, that, that was a happier time. Maybe we should have gotten uh, together a little earlier and get that uh, juju going in the right direction. But uh, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Appreciate you coming on very much. I guess let's start with this. So the Caps losing to the Bruins in just five games. Was that more about things beyond the Caps control, i.e. injuries slash absences, the playoff format for this season, you know, the variance of the puck on ice in a series in which each of the first three games went to overtime? Or was the Caps losing to the Bruins in just five games more about things fundamentally wrong with the Caps in their roster? Uh, you know, I think it's sort of the totality of, of all of it. You know, they, they obviously were a very banged up team. You saw it down the stretch, uh, Carlson, Ovechkin, Backstrom all missed games. Um, you know, I think Backstrom and Ovechkin got back for the last game of the season. Obviously, Kuznetsov and Samsonov missed games. Uh, Oshie missed, uh, games at the end. And quite frankly, you know, you look at Carlson in that series, you look at Backstrom, you look at Oshie in that series, those guys, uh, look pretty banged up to me. I mean, they did not look like the players that they normally are. Uh, not one of them scored an even strength goal in the series. Um, Backstrom, second straight year, he's had, you know, just one point, one assist in, uh, five games in the playoffs. Um, and then, you know, Kuznetsov was kind of a, a ghost once he finally got back in. And Samsonov, to his credit, uh, hopped in and was great. Uh, was, you know, obviously there was the, the mistake uh, in overtime, uh, the miscommunication with Schultz that handed the Bruins that game. Uh, but otherwise, he was, uh, you know, better than I, I would have expected. But uh, the reality was even a, a healthy Caps team, was probably going to have some trouble with this Bruins team. I mean, the, the Bruins, uh, ever since they got Taylor Hall at the trade deadline, they've been a totally different team, and uh, their top six is just terrific. <clears throat> you know, the, they've got their Bergeron line and uh, the Krejci line, and, and those guys really uh, got it going, especially after... Uh, you know, maybe the, the second game or so. It looked like it was going to be a pretty tight series for a while there, but then, uh, the Bruins in overtime of, uh, game two really kind of pushed it, pushed, uh, things in their favor, tilted the ice their way, and, uh, it never really was, um, close in the underlying numbers, uh, after that, but, uh, Samsonov really gave the Caps a chance uh, throughout uh, the series, and as did Anderson. You know, it, it, what's crazy is that as one-sided as a lot of the numbers from this series are, um, you know, the first three games of the series, Caps had leads in the second half of the game and just couldn't close them out. So, you know, they could have they could have been up three nothing conceivably, up two one. You know, uh, instead they were down one two, and then uh, kind of got blown out of the building in game four. Uh, even though that game was close too, so. You know, it's hockey, right? It's uh, you can be the much better team and lose. You can be the inferior team and win. And uh, unfortunately for the Caps uh, in this series, I think they were the inferior team and they lost. So, to you, what should be the approach moving forward? Are major changes needed, or should the Caps just stay the course? Because, like you just outlined, you know what? A few things are different, and the Caps are maybe leading the series. Maybe the Caps have already won the series. Yeah, it's it's hard because uh, on, on one hand they were a good team at times during this regular season. With a couple weeks left in the season, they sure looked like they were uh, they had it all together and they were headed towards another division uh, title. And uh, if they had gotten that in the Islanders in first round uh, in the first round, I think things would have been a little different. I, I think they matched up much better against the Islanders. They must they would have matched up better against the Penguins, frankly, uh, than the Bruins. It was just a really tough draw for them, and you know. It was the injuries catching up to them, but 
these are also things that as this core ages, you know, you have Backstrom at 34 and Ovechkin at 35 already, 36, I guess, by the time next season starts, assuming they sign him, of course. Uh, and uh, you've got Kuznetsov coming up on 30, TJ Oshie's 34. It, you know, it, it, these guys, it's not like um, we can expect them to, to get healthier and more durable over time. Uh, so, uh, and it's uh, basically a, a, at least a third straight year where they've kind of, they're kind of on the wrong trajectory to me. Uh, I mean, obviously, they won the cup. That cup team wasn't as good as the team the year before or the year before that. Um, thank God they won it. Uh, and uh, I'm not ready to give it back or anything because they weren't uh, the best team that they put on the ice. But, uh, you know, a- after that, you come back next season and they win the division and they lose to Carolina in seven. Then they come back and they win the division and lose to the Islanders in five. Now they come back second in the division out in five. So, you know, that, that trajectory is not really something that you're really uh, happy to see. Um, but the question is, wh- what can they do? Right. Cause they've got this core, they've got Backstrom, Kuznetsov, Oshie, Carlson locked up for the next four years. Um, you're going to sign Ovechkin presumably for something in the neighborhood of four or five years or whatever it is. And, uh, that, that's going to be like half of your cap, uh, in, in those, uh, handful of guys. So, uh, you know, maybe you lose a Kuznetsov or an Oshi to expansion if that's the, what you're thinking. Um, or maybe you try to move one of those guys or, maybe even uh, Carlson or something. But, uh, you know, the flexibility just isn't necessarily there um, in this roster uh, because of the the high-end guys and how much they've committed to them. So, um, you know, if I guess good news, if you like this team and thought they were just unlucky, you you might have another bite at the apple with the same crew. But, um, you know, I, I think... I think that uh, Brian McClellan probably is going to try to be a little more creative than that uh, in the offseason, so we'll see what happens. Talking Capitals with John Press, founder of Japers Rink. So you mentioned Evgeny Kuznetsov. What do you think should be done about Kuznetsov? He is obviously so gifted. He was so good in that run of the 2018 Cup, but he drives you nuts. You have the multiple COVID-19 absences this season. You, of course, previously have had a cocaine controversy. He's been benched in the past. We know he's disappeared at times. What do you think the right approach should be? I know some people have talked about leave him exposed in the expansion draft. I don't know, man. Like To me, it's like he's too talented to just let him walk away like that. But at the same time, he does drive you nuts as a Caps fan. What do you think the organizational approach to Kuznetsov should be? Yeah, I mean, he, he does have the talent. I wouldn't uh, expose him in expansion, I don't think. Uh, if if you're fed up with him, then, you know, sell him off for 60 cents on a dollar or whatever you have to do at this point. Uh, if, you, if you are sure that this guy is not part of the solution but is part of the problem, um, you know, get something for him because uh, guys of his talent, somebody will take a chance on that. Um, and if you move him, you better have something ready for that uh, second center position that the Caps forever, I mean, you and I know that that, that was forever the, the problem until Kuznetsov arrived, yeah. trying to figure out who's going to be the second line center, you know, whether it's going to be the Michael Nylander years and the Brooks-like uh, tries and the Eric Ferry even played center on the second line. You know, it was always just this revolving door of, um, you know, Eric Belanger types uh, that just never really settled it. And then Kuznetsov emerged and he really came through in 2018 uh, and gave uh, the Caps that one-two punch that uh, that contending teams really need to have when you have, like, you know, your, your Malkin and Crosby or, uh, you know, Stamkos and, uh, the guys in, in, uh, Tampa or Vegas or Colorado, you know, you, you need, you need centers. So, you know, if you're certain that Connor McMichael is that guy next year, which, uh, you know, I don't know that you could be that certain uh, of something like that, you, you got to figure out, uh, how you're going to replace Kuznetsov. So, cause just like with a coach, you know, it's easy to say, get rid of this guy, but it's harder to say, okay, so how do we replace that guy? Um, so, you know, if they think that, that Kuznetsov is more problem than solution, uh, trade him, uh, figure out some 
some return for him. I don't think that um, that you can just let him walk for nothing. You brought up goaltender earlier. As you think about what we saw this season from Ilya Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek, do you view either guy as a long-term answer at goaltender? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, a guy like Vanacek, um, to me, his upside is sort of uh, high-end backup goalie uh, who can fill in at, at certain times uh, for a stretch or whatever, like he did this year. Um, but, you know, it, he's not a, a great goaltender. Uh, I don't think he has the upside that Samsonov has. Uh, Samsonov is, is in a lot of ways in the same boat as Kuznetsov, though, with the, the organization uh, presumably being somewhat frustrated with uh, how seriously and how professionally he is uh proven to be so far uh, in his career, you, you know, but even before this year's uh, two COVID absences, he was unavailable in the bubble last year after suffering uh, an injury while off-roading in an ATV or something, uh, you know, during the COVID break. So, you know, he's a guy who's been handed every opportunity, you know, that the, the Caps let their, the, arguably the greatest goalie in franchise history walk to hand the job to Samsonov, and all he's done is, you know, fumble those opportunities. Uh, so they can't be thrilled with him. Uh, I do think he's got upside, um, and potentially upside to be a number one guy. Uh, I think he needs to work on uh, some things, which aren't uh, uncommon for uh, for a guy of his age, and maybe he's on the right trajectory. And uh, most importantly, at this point, he's uh, going to be cheap. Uh, so, uh, I think that if they can figure out a way to, um, have like a come to Jesus moment with Samsonov, uh, about his behavior and his professionalism, then I think that he's an option and he and Vanacek are an option as a duo going forward that's not going to cost you a lot of money because, it, it, which is important because they don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of, uh, yeah. cap room. Samsonov is the most prominent of the Capitals' restricted free agents to be. Alex Ovechkin, of course, is the most significant of the unrestricted free agents to be. Is there any realistic scenario by which the Caps don't re-sign Ovi, or is this a fait accompli that he's going to be back? Well, I mean, I I don't see him walking um, or them letting him go, but... um, with you on that. With Ovechkin, as a Caps fan as you are, to what extent is it frustrating that the Caps have had this all-time great player, and yes, won a cup in 18, which we'll of course never forget, but every other postseason appearance has ended in a first or second round. Like, it's not even they haven't won a bunch of cups, it's that they haven't even made it past the second round more than the one time. And of course, that's something that's been an issue for the Capitals in their franchise history, just three times, all time. Sure has the team advanced past the second round. As a fan, like, how do you view that? Is that just one of those things that you say, all right, well, they got a cup, so that's what matters? Or are you kind of in the boat that I'm in, which is, it's great they got the cup, but geez, you really would like to have accomplished more here with an all-time great in Ovechkin and another, I think, future Hall of Famer in Nicholas Backstrom. Yeah, uh, I mean, 
I guess we'll look back on it and be somewhat disappointed uh, if that's all there was. But, you know, for the first 40 years of the franchise, there wasn't even that. So uh, yeah. that, that, that and you and I were there for a lot of that. But so, uh, you know, I, I guess it, it depends how you really um, consider the entertainment product that, that is hockey. I mean, this is a guy in addition to the cup that, you know, they, they had the best record in hockey for three years in the regular season. Uh, I, I think that should be valued more than people tend to value it. It's an 82 game season and coming out on top there, uh, it, it's not nothing. You know, uh, European soccer leagues, uh, value that more than the postseason, you know, the regular season. They won tons of division titles. They won, he's led the league in scoring, in goal scoring, what, nine times? the MVP a handful, small handful of times. Uh, so, you know, sure, uh, they, they only got the one cup. That's, you know, more than a lot of guys will get. That's more than probably Joe Thornton will end up with or lots of guys. I'm just thrilled he's, he's off the list of greatest athletes of all time to never win a championship yeah. because that, that would have, you know, <laughs> that, that forever would have uh, really stung. So, you know, yeah, uh, it would have been great to to do more, uh, but of course it's not on him, uh, not solely on him at least. Uh, but he is the sort of the the bulletproof vest for this organization that uh, that he just takes shot after shot after shot, uh, regardless of uh, other than 2018. You know, it's always Ovi coming up short, and uh, you know, like I said. John Carlson, I don't think, has a goal since uh, the cup run. Nick Backstrom has two assists in the last uh, two playoffs. Uh, where's Where's everybody else? You know, Jake Rana didn't have a goal in the last two tr- playoffs, so they trade him for Anthony Mantha, who comes in and doesn't score a goal. So, you know, it, it is uh, absolutely uh, a team sport. Uh, Alex Ovechkin, more often than not, uh, in those um, disappointments, has been – uh, the best player or one of the very best players on the team. So, uh, you know, yeah, disappointing, but look around. It's not uh, just Alex, obviously. Yeah, not at all. I mean, he's been about a point-per-game producer in his postseason career. Though the, the idea that he's come up small in the playoffs has, has always been way overblown. I actually thought he played well in this series against the Bruins. Yeah. Final uh, moments here, and I appreciate your time so much. Where are you with Peter Laviolette? What did you make of the job he did this season? Do the Caps have the right guy as their head coach moving forward? You know, I, I liked the Laviolette hire. I didn't necessarily love the Laviolette hire. And I thought, uh, all things considered, he did a, a very good job in the regular season. It was a crazy year. No training camp, all the masking and all the COVID rules. Uh, it, they had a bit of a rough start for the first dozen or so games, and they got uh, very good from uh, mid-February through end of March, hit a little speed bump there, and then picked it up again. And I, I actually expected a little bit more from Laviolette in the playoffs, though. Uh, you know, one of the big concerns with uh, Todd Reardon it was his ability to uh, coach in the playoffs, which uh, just wasn't impressive. Um, he had uh, division-winning teams in the regular season. You can do, you can win a lot of games in the regular season just based on talent alone. Uh, but come playoff time, it really comes down to coaching and adjustments. And uh, when you go through a series with Boston like this, where the first couple games you're right there, and then after that. Your special teams, uh, penalty kill and power play both go in the toilet and you, uh, suddenly can't break pucks out of your own zone or enter the, uh, opposing zone under control for scoring chances. Uh, all of that really speaks to, to coaching to, to an extent. So, um, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed with, uh, what I saw there, but, uh, again, you know, this is a, a weird year, guy getting used to his team, maybe a normal, more normal offseason, everything. Um, we can start evaluating him a little bit more. Uh, you know, whether he is or isn't the guy, 
um, he's the guy for now. So, uh, let's hope he is. And, um, you know, I guess we'll, we'll maybe be talking about it again in a year, whether, uh, they need to make a change there or something. Well, I hope if we do, then they're in the midst of another cup run the next time we chat. Yeah. I, I appreciate you coming on so much, man. All the best. Continued success with Japers Rink. Yeah, thanks, man. Game two for the Wizards at the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the NBA playoffs isn't until Wednesday night at 7, but there was some good stuff said by the Wizards on Monday that I wanted to get into with you. Wizards, of course, lost game one at the 76ers on Sunday afternoon, 125-118 the final, got scorched by Tobias Harris in game one. Harris in game one, two of five on threes, 13 of 24 on twos, five of five on free throws, finished with 37 points, six rebounds, two assists versus two turnovers and two steals. However, Tobias Harris's game one really was a tale of two halves. The Wizards allowed Harris in the first half to score 28 points on 12 and 19 shooting, but the Wizards in the second half held Harris to nine points on three of 10 shooting. When we talk about what Tobias Harris did against the Wiz in game one, it really was about what Tobias Harris did in the first half of game one. Head coach Scott Brooks on Monday on how the Wizards defended Tobias Harris in game one. I think our defense on Tobias was obviously much better than that first, than the first half. I thought the first half we gave him a lot of comfort shots, a lot of, uh, comfort space. We didn't, we didn't challenge his, uh, dribble. We didn't challenge, uh, his space. And I thought in the second half we did a, a better job. He's a, I mean, you can't take nothing away from him. He's a, uh, He's a professional scorer. I mean, that guy, he scores all over the floor, too. He can post up smaller players. He can take the bigger players off the dribble. He's pick-and-roll player, transition player, gets to the free-throw line. I mean, we, but we, I think we can – the 28 points in that first half, especially, you know, the first – when the B got the second foul with six and a half minutes to go or into the quarter, I mean, I thought he took over and kept them, you know – right around where they wanted to be. But I I thought we were much better in the second half. We just got to, we got to play 48 minutes of, of that. Yeah, and that clearly has been an issue for the Wizards this season. The defense and playing defense for 48 minutes. It's one thing to do it for a quarter or two. Can you do it over the course of four quarters? Because if you do that, the Wizards have a shot to win some games in this series. I think that was made clear by the Wizards' performance in game one. Also from Brooks on Monday was him finally explaining why Daniel Gafford doesn't play more. So Gafford had a good game one, 12 points on six to six shooting, six rebounds, two assists versus no turnovers, and a team best plus minus rating of plus 14 in 20 minutes, one second off the bench. But why not more than 20 minutes, one second off the bench? I mean, you're a Wizards fan if you're listening to this. You tell me, when it comes to the Wizards' three-headed center monster of Daniel Gafford, Robin Lopez, and Alex Len, which guy do you like the most? Which guy do you want to see the most of? And I know, Robin Lopez has been a lot of fun with his throwback game, the hook shots in the paint, etc. But Daniel Gafford offers a package of length and athleticism, the likes of which the Wizards really don't have much of. He's an exciting player. He's a young rising player. We want to see more of Daniel Gafford. Why haven't we seen more of Daniel Gafford? Why just 20 minutes, one second of playing time in game one? Why did Gafford in the regular season average just 17.8 minutes per game for the Wizards? It was Brooks on Monday. Yeah, no, I, mean, I like I like his minutes on the floor. You know, there's, there's always other things to consider. And, you know, we have uh, foul foul situations that we have to be aware of foul trouble uh and it's hard to play the way we the way we play and he's he's as 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 athletic and as in great condition as any any big in the league but the pace that we play he's still you know he's still carrying around i don't know what he exactly weighs 260 uh that's a lot of weight to play you know 10, 12 minutes at a time. So we try to break it up as much as we can and the game flow, but minutes, his minutes on the floor has been really good and his minutes are gaining good experience as well. So I think the more minutes he gets, I think the more things that he's going to be able to see instinctually. Um, right now he's, sometimes he's a little hesitant. 
Um, we saw a bunch of clips with Embiid and and with uh, Howard that I think that he could do a better job with. One thing I love about Gaff that he understands that he wants to get better and he's very coachable. He listens to our our veterans. He listens to our coaches and he's he's a he's he's a really really talented young player that's going to continue to grow into a really good player. All right, so now we at least do have a better sense of why Brooks doesn't play Gafford more. And I do think a lot of what we heard there makes sense. Gafford is a bigger guy. The Wizards play with a lot of pace. In fact, the Wizards in the regular season were number one in the NBA in pace, possessions per 48 minutes per NBA.com. No team played faster than the Wizards did. And so if you're looking at someone like Gafford, who, by the way, NBA.com list is only weighing 234 pounds, but still, the gas tank can run low. Uh, with how the Wizards play. We also heard Brooks bring up how Gafford did against Joel Embiid. It was a mixed game one for the Wizards in terms of how they did against Joel Embiid. On the good side, Embiid went 0-3 on threes, finished with just six rebounds, committed five turnovers, and committed four fouls. On the other side, Embiid finished with 30 points, including 21 points in the second half. And the Wizards had a really hard time of defending Embiid without fouling him. He went 12-13 on free throws. Gafford, Lopez, and Len combined to commit 12 fouls in game one. It was interesting to me what Rui Hachimura had to say about all of this on Monday. Hachimura saying that the Wizards' double teams on Embiid in game one were too half-ass. That's a problem when you're facing a guy like Embiid. Here was Hachimura saying that on Monday. I think just like if you're going to do it, you just got to go for it, you know. Last night we were kind of like, you know, just doing the half-ass, you know, and just like, you know, we kind of kind of floating and stuff. So, you know, we just got to be more aggressive um, from the beginning. You know, the truth is the Wizards' defense in Game 1 wasn't terrible. And I know that's a low bar, right? But we're used to seeing the Wizards play terrible defense. I didn't think the defense was that bad on Sunday, especially as the game went on. I mean, you hated to see Tobias Harris go off the way that he did in the first half. You hated to see the Wizards foul Joel Embiid as much as the Wizards ended up fouling Embiid. But the Wizards overall defensively did a pretty good job. They just need to do a better job and they can win a game or two, maybe more in this series. I tell you what else too, going back to the three-headed center monster, you had a very efficient offensive game for Gafford, Lopez, and Lem. Those three guys combined in game one, 30 points on 13 to 16 shooting and 11 rebounds. Don't forget the 76ers finished the regular season second in the NBA in defensive rating, which is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com. That you had that kind of offensive efficiency in game one against the Sixers when it came to Gafford, Lopez, and Len is no small accomplishment. And I know sometimes it's misleading to just add up what a bunch of guys at one position in the NBA do in a game because multiple people can be playing at the same time. But that was not the case in game one. If you look at what's out there in terms of the advanced box scores, Gafford, Lopez, and Len, uh, no two of those three guys were ever on the floor at the same time in game one on Sunday afternoon. One more nugget from game one that I came across. So the Wizards in game one outscored the 76ers in the paint 76-58. In fact, the Wizards' 76 paint points in game one are the most points in the paint for a team in a playoff game since the NBA started tracking points in the paint in the 1996-97 season. How about that? No NBA team since the league started tracking paint points had scored more paint points than the Wizards' 76 in game one on Sunday afternoon. The Wizards are such a bizarre team this season for so many reasons, but among them is in this three-point-laden era, the Wizards don't take a lot of threes, actually haven't been very good on threes, but have been exceptional on twos and have been great at scoring points in the paint. Obviously, Russell Westbrook has had a lot to do with that. But gee, 76 paint points in game one, the most ever in the NBA in the postseason in terms of since the league started tracking paint points, which wasn't until the 96-97 season. It is amazing that it took that long for the NBA to start tracking something like that. But the point here is the Wizards, as much of an underdog as they may be as an eight seed facing a one seed in a first round series in the NBA playoffs, did quite a few things well in game one. And I'm not here to tell you the Wizards are going to win this series. I don't think that they are. But that was a competitive game one. That was a winnable game one. And there's no reason that the Wizards can't steal game two Wednesday evening in Philly.
All right, no game for the Nationals on Monday. We did, though, have a game for the Orioles, and it was another loss. It's a good thing that the O's are tanking, because otherwise the trajectory of their season and the specifics of these losses would drive you nuts. An 8-3 loss at the Minnesota Twins on Monday night in game one of a three-game series. Seventh consecutive loss for the O's. The 14th loss in 16 games for the O's, who now are 17-30 and on the season. And this was a game that the O's gave away. DJ Stewart, he was the Orioles starting left fielder and number six batter. A mammoth two-out, two-run homer to right field on the second pitch after a 45-minute rain delay for a 3-2 Orioles lead in the top of the eighth. That was some shot. That was a moonshot. The homer per stat cast when it projected 411 feet featured a huge bat flip by Stewart. So a great moment for the Orioles. They're ahead, 3-2. And then comes the bottom of the eighth inning in which three Orioles relievers, Tanner Scott, Cesar Valdez, and Tyler Wells, combined to allow six runs on a double Six singles, two walks, and a wild pitch. Not very good. No, that's not very good, Steve Spurrier. O's blow a 3-2 eighth inning lead. Lose again, 8-3 the final at the Twins. As the O's wasted another gem from John Means. Two runs in seven innings on five strikeouts versus five hits, which were two solo homers and three singles, and no walks. Means threw 63 of his 95 pitches for strikes. You know, he was not coming off a great outing. The 9-7 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Wednesday night. Means had, at best, his second worst start of this season. Four runs in six into third innings, but he was back to being really good on Monday night. John Means now over 10 starts this season. An ERA of 179, a whip a 0.75. It is amazing though. Means, of course, had the no-hitter earlier this season. That 6 nothing win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. A tremendous game, tremendous performance. No hits, no walks, complete game shutout that featured 12 strikeouts. That win improved the O's to 15 and 16. Since then, the O's are 2 and 14. Not very good. No. That's not very good. Also for the O's on Monday night, another good game for Anthony Santander. Uh, he is the Orioles starting right fielder at number four batter. Had two doubles, a two-out RBI double in the top of the first and the leadoff double in the top of the sixth. Santander has been terrific since he got activated on Friday off the 10-day injured list. He'd been on that since April 21st due to a sprained left ankle. Santander over the course of the Orioles' three-game sweep at the Nationals, six for 13 with a homer, two doubles, three singles, and a walk. And then on Monday night, Santander with two more doubles. Game two for the O's at the Twins, Tuesday night at 7.40, Dean Kramer versus Jose Barrios. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Wednesday's installment of the podcast, Don Ron Speaks. I'll discuss and dissect what Ron Rivera said at his Tuesday morning Zoom press conference with the Washington football team beginning the OTA practice portion of the team's offseason. Again, a reported 80-plus players showing up on Monday. Also, a preview, Wizards 76ers Game 2, which will take place in Philadelphia on Wednesday night at 7. Obviously, any realistic hope of the Wizards winning this series goes out the window if the Wiz lose Game 2. To whatever extent there exists realistic hope of the Wizards beating the Sixers in the first round of the NBA playoffs. But Game 2 is essentially a must-win for the Wiz. I'll talk Nationals on Wednesday's show. Is Tuesday is Thursday. Game 1 of a three-game series against the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park is on Tuesday night. Max Scherzer is starting. And we'll see if the Orioles can actually win a game with their Game 2 at the Minnesota Twins on Tuesday night. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. You know, the culture is actually damn good sick of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime dlm's friday may 10th see home club for details